So I have heard from one person today that they took up the Isaiah reading challenge this week. Now, many of you are going, hold up, what Isaiah reading challenge? Well, that just means you're not listening. No, I'm just joking. Uh, I, I issued a challenge um, uh, of reading through uh, the book of Isaiah. Uh, we looked at the fruit of the Spirit last week in celebration of our summer Bible school, which was focused on the fruit of the Spirit. And what I did, um, for those who weren't here, was I placed the fruit of the Spirit passage into its redemptive historical context which is a context that is often neglected when people talk about the fruit of the Spirit. And a lot of the context, um, theologically, that Paul is drawing from is from the book of Isaiah. As Isaiah unfolds itself along the lines of God dealing with his people, but he calls his people his vineyard, his garden. He says that they were supposed to produce uh, sweet grapes, but instead they had produced um, sour grapes. And then the rest of the book, I'm getting an echo. I don't know if y'all are. Or maybe it's just in my head, I don't know. Um, then throughout the book of Isaiah, what God does is he unfolds what he's going to do in cutting down the vine uh, and then to, to uh, have a new shoot come up from the stump. Uh, that famous passage we read every Advent from Isaiah 11, and that the shoot that would uh, grow from, that would come, spring up from that, from that stump um, would grow, and uh, it would produce fruit, and the fruit it would produce, uh, it would do so globally. And you see this vine that grows, and the description of the vine is, is stated alongside the coming of the Messiah. That the Messiah is this new shoot, uh, and the Messiah will be uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Well, he, he will bear the, the grapes that God's people were always supposed to bear. Uh, and then the fruit that he bears is not only his own fruit, but he, gives, he bears uh, branches uh, that grow off of his vine, and they bear fruit. Uh, and we looked at John 15, 5, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. So there's this, there's this whole redemptive historical context, the fruit of the Spirit, that is amazing throughout the book of Isaiah. And, and if you read Isaiah in one setting, uh, you sit down, read through it at once, um, it becomes a lot easier to see some of those big themes that are, that are coming through. Uh, and so we did have someone that did it. I'm not going to say who it was so as not to embarrass them. Um, but I would issue it again. Give it a shot. Uh, and if doing all 66 chapters at once is a little daunting, then do 1 through 39 in one setting and then do 40 through 66 in the next setting as that is the breakdown of the book. What we need, guys, or folks, not just the guys, what we need is perspective. We are bombarded daily with the perspectives of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Bombarded. Not just with the ideas, but the perspectives. What we need is to develop and cultivate within ourselves God's perspective. One of the best ways to do that is to read the Bible and read it in big chunks. 
so that you see his perspective as it unfolds. Well, that is what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. And so let's turn back to Ecclesiastes as we come to chapter 11 this Sunday. We are going to look at the first six verses, Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 6. I'm going to read that, and then I'm going to read a couple of verses from 1 Corinthians 15. That's why I changed our text for the assurance to 1 Corinthians 15, as you could hear the gospel from the earlier part of of that chapter and the way it hinges on resurrection so that you can hear that in connection to the verses that we'll read from the end. So Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 6, and then 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 50, and then 57 through 58. The title of the sermon this morning is, You Don't Know. So cast your bread upon the waters. I'm sure that cleared up everything, didn't it? Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full, um, are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow. Uh, And he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with a child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both will be good." Thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we need your help this morning as your Holy Spirit illumines your word to us. Clear away the distractions in our minds. Even more so, Lord, clear away the distractions that are in our hearts. And help us to listen afresh as your spirit reveals your your truth, as your spirit reveals your will, as your spirit reveals your presence. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In one of my favorite essays by C.S. Lewis, titled Meditation in a Toolshed, right? Every man just went, oh, hold up, this, this, there might be something here. Meditation in a Toolshed. Lewis says, I was standing today in a dark toolshed. The sun was shining outside, and through the crack at the top of the door there came a sunbeam. From where I stood, that beam of light with the specks of dust floating in it was the most striking thing in the place. Everything else was almost pitch black. I I was seeing the beam, but not seeing things by the beam. But then I moved 
I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes. And instantly the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed and above all, no beam. Instead, I saw framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches on a tree outside. And beyond that, 90 odd million miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. Now, you may, it may be hard for you to follow something like this, but all of you have done that. All of you have been, for example, in a dark space where there is light outside and there may be a crack or there may, there may be a hole or there may be a way for a little bit of that light to get focused in and come into the room. And, and what he is saying is there, there are two different perspectives that you, can, that you can use in dealing with the light. You can look at the light. You can look at that beam as it comes through. And when you do that, that's what you see. You see the light. And you will see anything, for example, like dust part. I mean, not in my home, but some of your homes may have like dust particles or something floating in the air. We're not allowed to have dust particles in our house. But you, know, you may see like little things floating or Right? You might see what's right on, you know, on the other side of the beam of light, but pretty much all you can see is that beam of light, and everything else is really dark, and it's hard to make out anything else in the room. When I was a child and we would go to my grandmother's, she had those light-proof shades on the window, uh, and the house was really dark in that room where I would sleep. And there was one little spot under the door where the carpet had been pressed down just enough that light came out and I would look for that light because I did not want to lie in that pitch dark room because I couldn't see anything. But you can look at the light. Or if you move yourself, you can look at where the light is headed. And when you do that, guess what? All that stuff that was dark, that was imperceivable, now you can see it. You can look at the light. You can use the light to look at everything else. What he's talking, and he's not saying that one is better than the other. What he's saying is that these are two very important perspectives that can help us in the way that we live our lives, especially as Christians. There is a way to look at the light. There is a way to use the light to look at everything else. This is what we call perspective. This is what the Bible calls wisdom. And that's what we have been looking at in Ecclesiastes. The Bible's wisdom literature that Ecclesiastes is part of is part of the means that God has provided, that God uses to change our standpoint and to radically shift our perspective as we look at ourselves as we look at the, and as we look at the world. It changes our perspective and it allows us to see things from, a, from multiple different perspectives.
perspectives. Left to ourselves, we tend to look at ourselves. We tend to look at our lives in this world from the perspective of youth, beauty, success, career, family, personal happiness, right? We tend to look at these things. And I know that we all do it because as the older you get, you start making jokes about your appearance. You start making jokes about the wrinkles that, that are appearing that, that weren't there. And the jokes are revealing something. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But in your own mind, would you vote for when I make a joke about the new wrinkle, I'm doing so because I'm celebrating the wrinkle. Or is the wrinkle reminding you that something is passing away? There are two ways of looking at that. We tend to look at things from the perspective of youth, beauty, Success, health, personal happiness. My life is going really well if my job's going well. I remember when I was younger, things seemed to be better back then, right? I remember back when there was still a lot more mystery in my marriage. When my career is going well, when I'm being recognized, when my health is going well, when I'm not dealing with pain or sickness, right? When things seem to be going well, we tend to think that our lives are going well. What, what Solomon has been attempting to help us see in Ecclesiastes is that's not the proper perspective for understanding life under the sun. Life that has lived in a world that has been cursed because of sin. But when we rightly, when we have the right perspective about life under the sun, then there is wisdom that we can glean from the reality that the world is cursed, that, that humanity is fallen. There is wisdom that comes from the acknowledgement that death is real and that it is certain and unavoidable. There is a wisdom that is embraced when we embrace the reality that we are not supposed to remain young in a world under the sun. There is a world where we will remain ageless. But that is life beyond the sun. And that's why I said from the very beginning, uh, in the very first sermon, I was going to attempt to do two things. One, let us allow the wisdom of Solomon, who was living at a time prior to the life and ministry and resurrection of Jesus Christ, to allow the wisdom that comes from death to, to positively form us as God's people, but to remind you that when Solomon said in chapter 1, there's nothing new other than the sun, he was right at that time. But with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, something new has come. 
that there is something that is new under the sun in this life, and that's the resurrection of, G- of Jesus Christ. And that is the inauguration of new life. So that life beyond the sun has encroached into life under the sun. And beloved, you and I, as, as believers in Jesus Christ, on this side of Christ's redemptive work, means that we are citizens of both life under the sun and we are citizens of life beyond the sun. And we are that coextensively at the same time. And that this is what it means for us to follow God. The wisdom we need is a wisdom that can be seen in life under the sun and the wisdom that comes from life beyond the sun working together. There is a God in heaven, a wise and loving Father who holds the righteous and who holds the unrighteous in his hands. He holds the wise and he holds the foolish in his hands. He is the creator and he is providential. He is its ruler. He is bearing all things to his appointed ends and he will not let anything get in the way. What this does for us is provides us a proper standpoint for understanding ourselves and understanding our lives in a world that is not defined by youth or eternal youth or eternal beauty, in a world that is not defined by eternal success or guarantees to avoid failure. All that is coming when Christ returns. Until that time comes, we're going to deal with a mixture of all of it. God's wisdom, God's perspective helps shape our expectations so that we are not trying to define ourselves or this world according to things that it can't be defined by. And one of the key things that Solomon has been hitting upon us is not just the providence of God. He has been hitting upon us that we don't know. Four times in these six verses, he says, you don't know. But he has been saying this for chapters. You don't know. You don't know. You don't know. God does know. You don't know. And he has talked about that from the perspective of helping us to embrace that we are limited so that we don't try to go beyond our proper boundaries. It is, it is a boundary in order to try to help keep us in our place. But this morning in this text, his emphasis upon us not knowing is a new perspective of not knowing. There's a not knowing that we have to embrace that says, be humble. God is God, you are not. God is infinite, you are finite. God is eternal, you are created. God is independent, self-sustaining. You are dependent, and, and without God, you do not have life even under the sun. There is, there is an embracing of our not knowing that helps us to embrace these proper boundaries. But when we do that, beloved, 
it then turns into not knowing becomes a realm of freedom that allows us to exercise not just faith in God, but an informed faith that is bold. You don't know if what you attempt to do this week is going to be successful or a failure. You don't know. And one perspective of that not knowing can lead you to therefore cower in fear. It can lead you to be like, well, I don't know what to do then, or should I try anything? And you can become indifferent. You can become afraid of failure and therefore not try anything. Well, if I'm not guaranteed success, why why would I put myself out there? You see, that's enslavement. If I can't rightly predict the future, which our text here tells us we can't, if I can't, if I can't properly predict the future, if I can't know the things that only belong to God, if I can't uh, avoid failure and guarantee success, well, then I'm just going to, I'm going to pull back and I'm going to put myself into what I think is a nice, safe little shell. And I'm not going to attempt anything. Or, as we have been saying throughout this, it might lead you to then be controlling. Well, I I don't know. But I bet if I work really hard, I can find out. I can't guarantee, but I bet if I work really hard, I can manipulate things in such a way as to give myself a better probability of outcome. What Solomon has been hitting upon us is, no, 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 no. Avoid both of those extremes and instead embrace faith in God's providence. And that faith in God's providence is a faith where we know that God is doing things in this world. And we know that he is moving this world to his appointed ends. And that, beloved, is to give us the proper confidence to therefore attempt things for God. Not to attempt something that he hasn't planned on, but to attempt things as one who is opening yourself up to be used by God to accomplish his purposes. And guess what? If you were going to do that, you're going to have to leave behind this idea that life is understood in terms of youth and beauty and success in your job and in your family. Part of what this text is telling us is there is a proper way to take risks in this life when we are trusting God. I spent a lot of time thinking this week about this opening phrase, cast your bread upon the waters. Uh, What? And if any of you have insights, let me know afterwards. Cast your bread upon the waters and it will come back to you. I think the next phrase is what helps fill it out. 
and that is the idea of sharing what you have with the people around you because you don't know how long you're going to be around. Meaning, in terms of your time and your treasures and your talents, you are not supposed to be collecting them and hoarding them and saving them up for yourself. You are supposed to use them for the benefit of the others that are around you. And guess what? Not only when it's comfortable, not only when it's easy, but when it takes a faith like the faith that it takes to throw your bread on the water and to think that it can come back to you. One of the things that we have to embrace with what it means to be followers of a triune God is that God is not limited by logic. His existence is supra-logical. His purposes are supernatural. And what that means is he is not hindered by the things that make sense within this world. Clouds, when they fill up, guess what they do? They rain. That's the design. That's how God designed it. And even in a fallen world, it still happens. If a tree falls, maybe there's no one there to hear it. <laughs> maybe it makes a sound. I don't know. But what we do know is that it's going to stay where it lies, right? Unless... It, it falls on a hill, right? And then, then it will roll down. Will it fall on a hill and roll up the hill? No. There, there are some things that are kind of standard within creation, these, these natural laws that are there that we can count on, but they are not ultimately definitive, and God works around them all the time. And part of our faith, beloved, is a faith that is not just a faith that grasps hold of certain truths, and then we try to live the best life we can live according to the cultural standards of our day. We, what we do is we embrace these eternal truths of God and then we take the risk of embodying those truths in a culture that does not like them. And we do so not uh, aggressively. We do so trusting ourselves to God who will take those risks of yours. And sometimes he will use them for what we think are good things. And sometimes he'll use them for what we feel are bad things. <laughs> but they're all good to him because they are all part of what he is doing to accomplish his eternal purposes. And so living by faith is living by faith, an informed faith, but it is an informed faith that is bold and that is willing to trust God and take risks. A faith that is not limited only by the natural laws that we can see within this world. He says you can be overly cautious. You can be a farmer and you can see that the wind is blowing and you can think to yourself, well, if I go out and try to sow seed right now, the wind will blow it away and then I won't have a crop. What does he say about that? If that's how you think, you'll never sow. But you can sow and trust your work to the Lord and see what he will do with it. William Carey, 
who is often referred to as the father of modern-day Protestant missions, which is not an accurate description. It totally leaves Calvin out, and I would have issue with that, and we can talk about that sometime. But William Carey was a Baptist minister. He was a Reformed Baptist minister uh, in England in the latter part of the 18th century or the latter part of the 1700s, and then into the beginning of the 19th century or the 1800s. And he was someone that was thoroughly frustrated with the way Reformed Baptists were engaged with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There were debates theologically within the Reformed Baptists at that time as to, well, if God is sovereign, then there's no reason for us to preach the gospel. Because God will just sovereignly regenerate whomever he wants. And so there was, there, there was these controversies. Where, where ministers were using Reformed doctrine as an excuse not to engage in ministry. I'll let that sink in for a moment. Now, they did so thinking they were glorifying God. So I'm not trying to point fingers. I'm just trying to help you see their perspective. They really thought that if God is sovereign, then there's nothing for us to do. And so William Carey, being tired of seeing this, this, the theology being abused and seeing the inaction, the inaction of the ministers of his day, he preached a sermon, May 30th, 1792, to the Baptist Associating Meeting in Nottingham, England, as they met at the Friar Lane Baptist Chapel. And the title of his, of his sermon was, Expect Great Things from God, Attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. And, and preaching from Isaiah, once again, he, he built a case for them entrusting themselves to God's sovereignty, which would lead them to do things for God, not lead them to sit on the sidelines and wait for God and to watch God do things in other places through other people's. And he preached this, and he waxed elegant, and he made such a good case that there were several of the ministers there that were brought to conviction, where they were like, you know what? Our hyper-Calvinism isn't correct. We are supposed to preach the gospel. We are to seek out preaching the gospel, even to people that we don't know if they are elect. We have an obligation to preach Christ to the heathen, is what they said. One of the pastors there said, Brother Carey, I think you have proved our negligence in the cause of God. Now that sounds awesome, right? They're coming to some conviction. Well, then the business meeting started. And now real life started. Well, if this is an obligation, if this is how we embody the gospel of Jesus Christ and extend it to the nation's well, guess what we need to do? We, we, we need to form some kind of structure, that, that some kind of missionary society that can help us engage in this process. And guess what else we need? We need money. And so William Carey made a motion on the floor for them to form a missionary society for the express purpose of taking the gospel to the heathen. And guess what? It wasn't voted down. 
Well, it wasn't voted down because it didn't even get a second. Now, for our non-parliamentarians, what that means is they didn't even get to discuss it. Because when someone has to make it, when someone makes a motion, someone has to second it, and then they can discuss it. It didn't even get a second. And guess how much money they raised? Zip. They said theologically that they believed something. They said that they were convicted in not doing what they believed. But when it came down to real life, let's put this to practice, they weren't willing to change. Brothers and sisters, you and I can confess Christ and we can hold to the Westminster Standards or the three forms of unity. We can have all the theology correctly. We can have it down pat and have it all right. But if we are not willing to exercise that faith, not only in believing something, but attempting something for God, then our theology is off. Our theology is wrong. It's like our theology can become a distraction. That was a joke. It's okay. Life under the sun. That's where cell phones come from, the curse. <laughs> Amen, that's right. Can I get a second on that? All right. So moved. <laughs> that's right. We can have all our theology down pat, but if it doesn't lead us in, in, to have an informed faith that is bold in trusting God, in taking our time, our treasure, and our talents, and putting it to use for God, then, beloved, your doctrine, it's just a set of ideas. They're good ideas, they're the right ideas, but they're just ideas. What we are called to do, beloved, is to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, to embrace the reality that God is desirous of doing amazing things, and that God, for some reason, has chosen to use us as his people as the instruments by which he acts. And so it's one thing for us to, to, to hear a sermon that says, yes, embrace Christ by faith, uh, and yes, embrace what that means for you and your standing with God. With God. Embrace by faith that, that you have a perfect standing with God because of the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful theological statement to believe. But if it doesn't go that next step, to embracing that the life that God gives me in Jesus Christ is a life that I now pour out to him as a thank offering where I entrust myself to him and serve him not just when it's comfortable but even when it requires sacrifice. Then, beloved, we are not living with the wisdom of the gospel 
we are still living according to the folly of the world, the flesh, and the devil. When William Carey saw that he did not get a second and that there was no money raised, his response was, is nothing going to be done again, sirs? Then they acted. Carey himself ended up going to India and spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout India. And many ended up from that mission society going to Africa and spreading the gospel throughout Africa. Many went to the islands in the Southwest Pacific. And from that one missionary society, because of the conviction of a truth that God is not just here, but God wants to use us to accomplish his ends. Because there were men that were willing to do something that was completely contrary to the thinking and to the culture of their day. It was completely contrary to the thinking and to the culture of the church of their day because they were willing to risk that. The gospel of Jesus Christ was spread throughout the globe. One missionary went to the New Hebrides Islands in the southwest Pacific and went to an island that was known for cannibalism, and he was the second missionary to attempt missions on that island. And he was the second, well, he was technically the first to attempt missions on the island. And that's because the first missionaries that went to the island, when they got off their boat, they didn't even get all the way up on the beach before the natives surrounded them, killed them, and then ate them because they were cannibals. And as this missionary who knew that tale decided he was going to go and attempt, some, uh, attempt something for God, expecting something great, as he was going around raising support for that, an old gentleman who had the best intentions uh, that he could have, who also reflected the thinking of that day, he said, why would you go there? The cannibals, the cannibals. Why would you risk your life, the cannibals? And his response was, well, sir, whether my body is eaten by cannibals as I arrive to the island, or whether my body lives to a ripe old age, is put into the ground, and then is eaten by the worms, either way, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, my hope is in a new, much more fairer body that is to come. And whether I'm eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms, nothing will stop that from coming to pass. Beloved, the resurrection of Jesus Christ means for Christ and it means for us that you and I are no longer limited only to life under the sun. And that because of the victory of Jesus Christ, not only can we dwell in the secure hope of our salvation, we can give ourselves unreservedly in service to God, knowing that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, your labor is not in vain. Is nothing going to be done again? 
Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for the way that you reveal yourself to us. Not only revealing to us your law, but revealing to us our righteousness in Jesus Christ who kept the law for us. And we thank you for what that means for us in our eternal standing before you. But Lord, help that gratitude to sink deeper and to go wider. And Lord, help us to embrace your providence so that we would not be satisfied with sitting in the hope of Christ and waiting for something to come, but that we would give ourselves to you. There are so many different things that we can do as embodiments of the gospel in this world, regardless of our age, regardless of our youth, regardless of our beauty, regardless of our jobs, regardless of our families, regardless of any of the worldly things by which we tend to assess our lives. And so break us from the perspective of viewing things that way and instead help us to view things from the perspective of the wisdom of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us to truly embrace an informed faith that is bold and takes risks and who entrusts everything that we do to your care, knowing that you will even use people like us to put, your, to put your glory on display and to call people out of darkness and into light. Lord, help us by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only to expect great things for, from you, but to attempt great things for you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.